Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. This week, I'm talking with Homer Steedley, who grew up in Bamberg and went in the Army, went through OCS, and went to Vietnam. And you may have heard the earlier broadcast we did almost a year ago and then had an encore last week about Homer's encounter on his first engagement in Vietnam where he shot and killed a young medic. And going through souvenirs he brought home, he found documents related to this young man, put him on the Internet, and courtesy of the Internet, he got into contact with the young man's family. And the family wanted him to come to Vietnam. Homer has returned from that trip in May of 2008, and he participated in the funeral ceremony in a small village northeast of Hanoi. We'll have this very moving conversation with Vietnam veteran Homer Steedley, but first, your NPR news break. With me in the studio today is Homer Steedley. Homer is a Vietnam veteran. He grew up in Bamberg County, and as a young man, went into the Army, went through OCS, became an officer. He had an interesting experience during his tour, and we recorded that on an earlier interview, and part of that recording dealt with his discovering the name and the family of an individual whom he shot and killed on his first mission in Vietnam. Now, Homer, that was a long introduction, but first of all, welcome back to the journal. Thank you. And... When we last left Homer, he was planning to go to Vietnam to meet with that family. And since then, he did. He's just back after a 10-day, two-week journey. Two-week journey, right. Two-week journey into Vietnam. And um, it was quite an experience. And so, Homer, I'm going to turn it over to you. And let's kind of let folks catch up with with, with your discovering Dom's family. Well, I, when I started my website a few years back, I asked my mother if she had my letters that I'd sent home from Vietnam, and she did. And when she was finding those, she also found a packet of documents that I had sent back and completely forgotten about that I had taken off of a young Vietnamese medic that I'd encountered in the, in the Central Highlands. And we met face-to-face, sudden encounter, and, and I fired first and, and, and killed him and had these documents on him. And there were I sent them home. Um, I sent them into intelligence, first of all, to be, you know, um, to see if there was any information there that would be of use. And then I asked them to send them back to me, and I sent them home as a souvenir because in the, in the documents, in addition to letters and certificates and all that, there was, there was this wonderful book of incredibly beautiful pen and ink uh, medical drawings mm-hmm. where this medic was teaching other medics how to, how to you know, human anatomy and, and vein structure and stuff like that. So I sent them home, but I forgot about them. And by the time I finished my second tour in Vietnam, um, but now, when was that second tour finished? I started in, in August of 1968 as a second lieutenant, and it was uh, in March of 79 is when Dom and I encountered each other. In 69. 69. 69, right. Yeah. And then I, I actually got back uh, as a company commander um, in March of 70, came back to the States. Okay. So anyway, I, I found the documents, and then... Once I saw the documents and remembered what had taken place, well, I wanted to try and get those documents back to the family of the, of the individual. But I had no idea how to do it. So I pu- published the documents on my website. And uh, how did you do You just scanned them in? and Scanned them in, scanned the pictures in, and wrote a little description of the encounter. And, um, and, and this encounter at Central Highlands near Pleiku, out from Pleiku? Actually, um, um, off the ridgelines 
in the Mangyang Pass between Pleiku and Anke. Okay. And uh, we were doing uh, reconnaissance of the ridgelines to keep uh, the, the North Vietnamese from setting up our, uh, mortar positions along the ridgeline to hit the trucks coming through the Mangyang Pass. Um, you were sitting ducks when you came through the pass because it was so twisty and turny. Mm-hmm. You had to slow down, and that made you an easy target. So we were, we were checking out that, that ridgeline whenever I encountered Dom. But anyway, I didn't know how to get in touch with anybody. Um, and while I was trying to research and find some contact in Vietnam, uh, a Marine Corps door gunner, Wayne Carlin, who um, teaches history up in Maryland now, uh, contacted me and said that he had contacts in Vietnam and would see if they could find out who I could get these documents to or how we could locate the family. And he talked to a journalist friend of his um, who runs, who publishes a newspaper, Education and Times, uh, Fan Tan Howe was her name. And she published the story and some pictures from the website in the newspaper. And within a day, the family contacted... This is a Vietnamese newspaper. Vietnamese newspaper, right. And within a day, the family contacted the journalist. And uh, she told Wayne. And then the family was, you know... the family didn't know what had happened to Dom. He went to war, and he was one of the 200-and-something thousand that went to war and disappeared, and nobody knows what happened to them. So they were just, like, ecstatic to find out that someone knew what happened to Dom. And they wanted to get the documents back um, really bad. Uh, in fact, what turns out that they had been told by— there's a, a nationally known psychic in Vietnam who they consulted, and the psychic had told them that Dom was in America. Well, that was interpreted by the people in the village that Dom had defected, Mm -hmm. you know, a very shameful thing to have happen. So when they found out that it was actually the documents that were in America, not Dom himself, this was, this was great because not, you know, the shame was being removed here. They wanted me to bring the documents back, but this was only a year after I'd started dealing with the Vietnam memories that I had. So I wasn't really prepared emotionally to, to handle that but agreed to send the documents to them. Well, Wayne was going over to do an interview for a book he was writing in a couple of weeks, so he agreed to take the documents for me. And he expected to go go to Vietnam, meet one of the family members, hand them the documents, and that would be all it was. It turned out to be a, a big, big deal. I mean, there were some like 200 people in this village of, of 500 families. There were some like 200 soldiers that went to war and, and just disappeared. And they only know about, the. they've only identified the remains of 15 of those those 200 people that disappeared. So to get one more person identified and, and to find out what really happened, this was the, the whole village uh, was Im- impacted emotionally. And when he went to turn the documents in, one of the family members met him outside of town and then escorted them into town. And all along the road on the way into town, there were these people with these white uh, Buddhist morning headbands on. Wayne said they were throwing these these green and orange rice paper sheets out the window, and he asked him what that was. And he said, well, that's the Buddhist way of marking the trail so that Dom Soul can, can find his way back to the village. And bringing the documents back, they thought, was setting a trail for Dom to, to, to be able to get his spirit back to the village. Mm-hmm. And, and when he got into town, they had a ceremony and, and had speeches by everyone, speeches by one of Dom's brothers, by some of the military people, by some of the veterans who uh, enlisted in the war the same time he did and made it back. And then they retired to the, to the family's house and uh, actually gave the documents to the family at that point. Uh, Wayne said that uh, it was more than he bargained for, but it was very cathartic for him. It, it, it helped uh, bring a lot of closure for him as well. So anyway, from the documents, 
and the information I was able to give them about um, when and where I believed it to have happened, they were able to contact a cemetery up um, just outside of Pleiku, where the military police had a, a big mass grave site where dozens and dozens of remains, unidentified remains, had been interred. And they got a report from one of the one of the people when, when Dom's documents were uh, brought back. One of the documents was a driver's license, and it wasn't Dom's driver's license. It was a truck driver named uh, Nguyen Van Hai. Mm-hmm. So um, between talking to Hai and talking to some of the veterans that went into service at the same time that Dom did, they were able to figure out that the body had been recovered by the by the North Vietnamese and had been sent to this particular burial site. Okay. All right. Now, when did you leave the States to go to uh, Vietnam? Yeah, um, let's see. I don't remember the exact date, but it's around the 15th of May, 16th of May, something like that. Okay. And left Asheville. Well, I left Asheville, and I went to Charlotte, which is about an hour or something. And then from Charlotte to Dulles International Airport, which is about a two-hour flight. And there you linked up with? There I linked up with uh, Wayne Carlin, um, and then early the next morning we left Dulles. From Dulles to Narita, Japan, which is our first stop, was a it was a fourteen hour flight. Fourteen hours. Okay, yeah, that's, still, that that's still that's still a long flight. Yeah, it, it's a long flight. Well, it's halfway around the world. If yeah. you look at the if you Google Narita, Japan, and and Dulles Airport and fly the flight, the globe turns all the way around. I mean, it's the other side of the well, world. Okay, and then from Japan, hop- uh, yeah, from Narita, Japan, then we flew to. Saigon, which is actually Ho Chi Minh City nowadays, mm-hmm. I, I knew it as Saigon back in the '60s, but uh, and it's a six-hour flight from Japan to to Saigon. Air, Air Vietnam or, or? Uh, no, we um, we flew all the way on all Nippon Airlines, um, simply because we uh, Wayne has been there a lot and he prefers the service uh, of all Nippon, so we flew with them. And then once we got to Vietnam and to Ho Chi Minh City, we spent a day in in Saigon. And then once we got to Vietnam and to Ho Chi Minh City, we spent a day in, in Saigon just settling down and getting acclimated. And the first thing I noticed, when we got in around midnight, and it was still uncomfortably warm at midnight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'd forgotten how hot it gets, really. So the next morning we got up and we st- started moving around the city. And by 9.30, you're drenched in sweat, mm-hmm. and you stay that way all day. And I, I mean, I'd just completely forgotten about how hot it is. Um, so we spent a day and, and got to go around and um, visit around the city. Went to one of the local markets, which was an experience all in itself. Mm-hmm. See, I never got to see all of this kind of Vietnam when I was in, in country. I was spent most of the time either on military bases or in the jungle. So I never got to see the actual way that people live. Well, see, being an advisor of mine was just, you know, I, would, I spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah, well, I, I never yeah. got to see any of that part of Vietnam. I never even got to see that many rice paddies except from the air when I was flying over them to land into a drop zone, mm-hmm. you know. So, so this was this was interesting to me, and and I did get to see um, and talk with quite a few people as we're traveling up and down the country in vehicles and on the trains. Uh, I got to talk with just normal Vietnamese, you know, um, about their daily life, and yeah. and got to know the culture quite well. Um, I, all all the people were extremely friendly. I mean, to to think that I'm their former enemy, and and they were just so open and friendly and, and curious as to what I was doing there, and. And, and when I'd been in country and, and where I'd been in country and all that, uh, very open about everything. Uh, I, was, I was very impressed with the, the, the way the Vietnamese people treated me. 
It's right. like I was their personal guest, you know. This is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Vietnam veteran Homer Steedley about his return to Vietnam. So, so you're, you're in Ho Chi, Ho Chi Minh City and really just being a tourist at this yeah, point. Yeah, at, 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 at the beginning, right. And then uh, the next day we flew out to Hanoi. We spent one day in Hanoi, and that's when we got to meet uh, two people, the, the newspaper writer, um, uh, Fan Tan Hao, who had put the original story out that got us in contact with Fan. We had dinner with her. And then later that evening, we actually went to her home and met her family and had um, an evening meal with her there. Uh, and early in the morning, we went by the uh, Lieutenant Tien, um, who who's, uh, had built a memorial to the Vietnamese MIA at the um, Military Zone 4 Museum. And we went by there and were able to see um, all the artifacts they had recovered um, from, these, from these burial sites. And uh, we had the Vietnamese TV crew with us also, and they were, they were um, taping. In fact, they were with us the whole time. So anyway, we spent a, a night in Hanoi. And then uh, the next day, they started the funeral ceremony at 6, a, 6 a.m. So we drove on out and got there about quarter to seven, I guess. And then one of the brothers met us. On, this is about maybe 50 yards between the little highway, the little dirt road that leads into the village, and their house. So he met us there and told us to wait a few minutes that this family was having a ceremony in the, in the house. So about 15 minutes later, they brought us up to the house and then made us wait in the courtyard. And I could see inside the house and see the altar and see the family members all on one side. And all of them seemed to be clustered around one individual, and I didn't know what was going on. Fifteen minutes later, we were brought in, and the family's still over on the right side, and right in front of the altar. And there's a lot of commotion going on over there, and I don't know what's going on yet. Well, I had brought a, a plate of fruit to put on the altar as an offering. And then we're all given incense sticks and allowed to light the incense sticks and go up and place it on the, in the holder in front of the mm -hmm. altar and then, you know, pay our respects. And we had a little bit of food, and um, we're going to discuss the plans for traveling to, uh, to Anke to locate the remains and come back and the funeral plans and all that. And, uh, and this, this had all been planned out days in advance. We got there. They changed it all around. And so we spent like an hour, over an hour, discussing the plans for the next day. And while all this is going on, there's um, someone over, there's three or four of the female family members are gathered around this one person, which I later learned was, was um, uh, Dom's niece, who, when, when she was younger, she had bad uh, eczema. So she had sores all over, and people kind of shunned her, you know. And Dom was the only one that would play with her, and he bathed her and cared for her wounds and all that. So she was very attached to Dom. She even, I mean, her first name is Dom. She had actually changed to that. She was over in the corner wailing, and when I say wailing, I mean screaming wailing. Mm -hmm. Her head was tilted back, her teeth were bared, and she was babbling. My, my Vietnamese interpreter, Quan, says, I don't know what she's speaking, but it's not Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> says, and every once in a while, she says a few things in Vietnamese, but most of so she's basically speaking in tongues, as, as we would, some of the religious people here in the States would understand. And what it turns out was going on was she was, she was actually channeling Dom's spirit. She was giving messages to the family from Dom. And, and they were, and of course, I'm, you got to understand, I've just walked into the house for the first time of a family whose son I killed. Mm -hmm. So I'm not feeling completely comfortable. And there are military people all around that were in the same area at the same time that I probably shot at. 
So I'm feeling very nervous. They also shot at you. And they shot at me, right. <clears throat> and then I've got this woman in the corner that's obviously not rational. So I'm tense, <laughs> to say the least. But it, it turned out she was just responding from the, from the emotional distress of what was going on and um, had given the family some clues about different things, which they told the, and later the psychic, who then used that to interpret uh, where we would find Dom and, and, and what we would find with him, which, again, like I say, just the accuracy with which she predicted this stuff was just phenomenal. I mean, I've heard of things like that happening here in the States with some of the, the psychics here in the States. But until it happens to you personally, you, you can't understand how dramatic it is to have that happen. Okay. How did they identify Dom's remains? Well, uh, again, this family believes in that national psychic um, who's had a, a pretty impressive track record. And she told them that when you go to the graveyard, you will find, I forget how many, eight or nine rows of graves, and there's six or eight ro- grave sites in each row. And to go to the third row and the seventh grave, and when you dig the grave up, you will find, and she told them some things they would find in the grave. Um, and the family doesn't want to reveal all the details, but essentially there was going to be a ceramic bowl and a red raincoat. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just it's kind of spooky that they found the ceramic bowl and they found a piece of red cloth that had been a waterproof raincoat in in the site they dug exactly where she told them to dig so they didn't do dna testing to see if it was dom's remains but that's that's sufficient enough for them to believe it and and they recovered the bones and cleaned them up and then like i say they had to put them in a, in a showerhead box because you can't just walk around in public with with remains mm-hmm. um, it's not allowed so uh, you can't get on any kind of public transportation with the human remains. So they, uh, they put them in a showerhead box and brought them back to um, play coup where the, they had a, rented a private vehicle. We drove from uh, just outside of Anke where the, where the graveyard was. We drove from Anke through the Mangang Pass in private vehicles. Mm-hmm. And the family wanted to stop since we knew that it happened somewhere along the ridge lines on the Mangang Pass. They wanted to stop somewhere along the pass and just have a little quiet ceremony to consecrate Dom's remains. Mm. And so we just told them, you know, wherever you see a place that both vehicles can safely get off the road, uh, just pull over and we'll pull over too. Well, we pulled over and uh, we go and we have the ceremony, which is very touching. Um, and of course, I participated. I'm not emotional. I, you know, in 39 years, I don't think I've cried maybe once in 39 years. And on this trip to Vietnam, I broke into tears probably a dozen times. I mean, I just couldn't help it. Um, it, it, it it's just so emotional mm-hmm. to, to, to realize they didn't know what happened to him for so long, and suddenly they, here he is. You know, they, they've got him back again. Uh, it, it got very emotional, and, and, I, and the emotion just overflowed to me. It just it washed through me. I mean, I couldn't help it. Um, anyway, so we get through doing that, and they're loading all the stuff back up, and we had moved the remains back to the vehicle. And meanwhile, I'm just kind of wandering around, looking at the terrain, remembering the terrain, and all of a sudden, the memory comes back to me. Mm-hmm. What had happened was, yes, we had a couple of days before I met Dom, there had been an ambush, um, a meeting encounter, and we had taken two wounded. We had one guy with a bad leg wound, another one with a sucking chest wound. So we had to get them out in a hurry. And this is what I had remembered before. 
that that's why we left Dom's mm-hmm. body because we were carrying these. Well, that's not what happened. We did get those people to a landing zone and get them out in a hurry. But what happened was they then extracted one platoon from that landing zone, and I went back. I was out in the field paying the company is the reason I was there in the first place. You were the company XO. I was the company XO, so I was carrying the payroll. So what I had done was jump on the chopper with this platoon that was, was uh, assaulting out. They were being taken back to base camp that night to re-outfit, and then they were supposed to go to the Mangang Pass and search this ridgeline. Well, I managed to get everybody paid and get all my paperwork done, and this platoon did not have a platoon leader. They only had a, an E6, a sergeant, running the platoon. So the CO asked me to go, since they're going to be detached so far away from the rest of the unit and actually so far away from the battalion, um, they were worried that they might get in trouble and, and need a lot of resources. So the CO asked me to go with them, and I jumped on the bird and went out to the Mangang Pass with them. Well, what they did was they CA'd us to the Pleiku side of the pass down in the valley on the flatlands. We got out there, and then we were supposed to walk up the end of the ridgeline where it started, um, the pass started through there. But it was too steep to walk up the end of the ridgeline. So we walked up the road a little ways, and, and it was still too steep. So we go on up the road about two more clicks, and finally it looks like it's not going to get any better, so this is better than it was back there. So, would you, would you, you know, we'd like it not to be quite so steep, but we got to go up somewhere, so this is where we're going to go up. And I look up on the ridgeline, and you see the whole ridgeline, and there's a tree, you know, canopy of trees, and then there's one tree that's maybe 50 foot taller than any other tree around sitting on the top of the ridgeline. I mean, it just stands out, you know. So I told them, well, that's what we'll do. We'll head to that tree. And then when we get there, we'll take a left and go back and check the front part of the ridge. And then once we've cleared that, we'll come back up to the tree, and then we'll finish checking the rest of the ridgeline. Well, we did, and as we were coming back, we stopped about maybe 100 meters short of the tree and kicked off both sides of the trail and were just taking a break and, you know, rehydrating, drinking water. I walked up to the front of the column to talk to the medic that was up front. Well, I was talking to him and the point man who was still sitting on the trail looking down the trail, you know, security. And we didn't have any rear security out, or, and really didn't, we were moving high speed down the trail because we had just walked it, so we didn't expect to find anybody. Well, he turned around, the point man turned around to say something to me, and just as he did, that's when Dom popped around the trail and, and just popped into sight. And at first, I didn't know what I was looking at because you got to understand, we're all covered in red mud. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you, you can't be clean out there. And here's this guy looks at he looks at him, just stepped out of, you know, military beautiful magazine or something. I mean, he's <laughs> perfectly spotless. So yeah. at first it didn't it didn't seem real, but then I realized yes, this is real. Here's an enemy soldier, and he's bringing his weapon off his shoulder. He had his weapon slung on his shoulder, and as he's bringing it down, I've already got mine leveled. I always carried it down at my hip. So I hollered at him, Chu Hoy, which is the only thing I could yeah. think of to say. Um, it's not exactly the right thing, but it's, it's open arms. and yeah. basically give up. And he just kept trying to bring his weapon around on me. And just before he leveled it on me is when I hit him with a three-round burst and stitched him through the chest and killed him. Um, well, anyway, as I'm looking around here at the ceremony, I look up and see that tree. And when I first look at it, it looks familiar, but I can't quite put it all together. And then... I walk around for a few more minutes. I take some pictures of the, of the scenery, you know. And as I'm not thinking about it, it all comes back to me in, in a, just a rush, you know. Oh, my God, this is it. This is the – we this inadvertently the, stopped at exactly the place where the patrol started that wound up costing Dom his life. Mm-hmm. I mean – So did you go up to the ridgeline? 
No, no, no. It's still too steep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was steep enough that when we climbed it on that day, we had to literally climb from root to root, from bamboo clump to bamboo clump. So it was very steep. And uh, no, we did not go up that day. No, definitely. I'm, I'm 62 years old now. There's no <laughs> way. I, I think I have a heart attack before I got up there nowadays. Um, but anyway, I didn't tell anybody in the group what I thought because I still wasn't completely sure. I thought maybe I was just making this up, you know. And that night I thought about it a lot and I said, yeah, that's, that's it. That's exactly what happened. This is exactly the spot. So then I told the rest of the group and they like really freaked out, you know, like, this is just incredible. You know, Dom's spirit must have led us to this point, mm-hmm. which I think possibly is true. Mm-hmm. So anyway, then we all had dinner together and the family up until this point, one of the brothers, either the older brother or the younger brother, Cat, would would talk to me, but basically the family was kind of standoffish. Um, they were much more open and vocal. Uh, the sister talked a lot to me during the, the lunch. Once the remains were at, Once the remains were recovered, yes. This is Walter Edgar's journal, and right after this break, we'll continue our conversation with Vietnam veteran Homer Steedley. Welcome back to Walter Edgar's journal. I'm talking with Bamberg native Homer Steedley about his return trip to Vietnam. The family up until this point, one of the brothers, either the older brother or the younger brother, Cat, would would talk to me. But basically, the family was kind of standoffish. Um, they were much more open and vocal. Uh, the sister talked a lot to me during the, the once lunch. Once the remains were at once the remains were recovered, yes. Um, but anyway, we had lunch with them, and then we had to drive back to the train station. Um, so we had to go back to Pleiku and then from Pleiku to Vin. And we drove all the way back um, through Pleiku straight to Vin. And, uh, and then they took the remains in a private vehicle and, and took off. And we got on the train and headed back towards Hanoi. And then uh, the next day we had to get up early and, and, uh, for the funeral. And we get there and the same thing is happening as it was when I first met the family. Um, the niece is over in the corner, not channeling Dom now, but just simply sobbing uncontrollably. And, and of course, the Irish would call it keening, but but yes, but the, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. The 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 wailing at is traditional at a Buddhist funeral, wearing white. Yeah, and Dom uh, Dom's <laughs> youngest brother Cat um, was was wailing, sobbing almost as much as she was. And now, the older some... brother um, uh, Luong reminds me of me. He's very quiet, speaks very few words, never smiles. I'm sure he's suffering a lot of post-traumatic stress, although that term is not allowed in Vietnam. They, don't, they, were, they were justified and right, so they don't have any reason to be stressed is the way they look at it. So the, I, every time I mention post-traumatic stress, I get hushed quickly. Mm. So, so they don't admit it, but he is. And, uh, and the, other, the other sisters and the other um, brother-in-law and nieces and nephews and so forth, um, they're all, you know, sobbing from time to time. And they usually have drums. Yes, the military, uh, the military detachment in town had a drum, uh, about a five or six piece uh, traditional instruments and drums. And they were at the when I after I presented the, um, you know, my my uh, respects at the altar inside the family home, then and met with the family members. Then I was escorted to the tent where the funeral tent, and it was a huge tent. Uh, maybe a hundred, hundred foot long, wow. 50 foot wide. There's three or 400 people milling around. And in the tent at the front was the, basically the coffin 
mm-hmm. with a flag draped over it. Um, most of the family altar, and on the excuse me, on the right side was the uh, the family members, and on the left was this band that the military had provided, and one of the political leaders, one of the military leaders, kind of emceeing the, the the ceremony. And what was happening, we were escorted straight in and allowed to sit right next to the family, mm-hmm. right in front of the altar. And then for the next two hours or so, um, we just see one one family from the village after another come up. Um, they're, they're usually announced by the, the military um, announcer, and the band will play a little bit as they're marching up, and then and then they'll come to the altar, they'll light some incense and set it down. Most of them stopped and prayed for a few minutes. Uh, quite a few of them put an envelope on the altar, which I assume is some kind of contribution to, to the family to help pay for the, for the whole proceedings. Um, and it's like I say, for about two hours, it's just family after family after family paying their respects. Quite a few of them walking away in tears. I mean, I was surprised at how many of them were so deeply emotionally attached to, the, to this whole ceremony. And then finally... Um, Dom's older brother, older surviving brother, grabs him by the arm and pulls me up in front of the altar. And then he goes and gets the rest of the American crew and brings them up also. And, and one by one, each of us gets an incense, gets handed a lighted incense, and we get to place it up on the little incense holder in front of the altar and, and you know, say our prayers and step back. And I was the last one. And, and I, just, I just lost it when I got up there in front of strangest thing happens the first time I met the family and I saw that picture of, of Dom and his brother mm-hmm. I the eyes I remember those eyes when I looked into them when he, when I shot him because when I first got there they still had the life in them you know mm-hmm. and then the life faded and that's something if you ever see it if you ever see the life disappear from someone's eyes it kind of like it's something you never forget mm-hmm. and when I saw the picture of the two brothers I was drawn to Dom's eyes. I mean, it's like I couldn't look anywhere else except directly into his eyes. And as we were sitting over on the side talking, discussing the trip, I, every time I l- lost my concentration for a minute, I'd find myself looking back over in the corner and making eye contact again. I mean, it, was, it was spooky. Come up to the altar, same thing. I come to the altar. I, I'm doing my, you know, my bows and everything. And I look up, and he's looking right at me. I mean, those eyes are looking right at me. And I just... I turned around and tried to say something, and my voice broke, and tears are streaming. So I just turned around and got back in line with the rest of the Americans, and then we, and we were let out um, to go to the to the funeral wagon and, and begin the ceremony. And as I'm starting to move out, uh, Dom's older brother grabs me by the arm, and, and I don't know what he wants me to do. And Quan walked up and told me, he said, he wants you to help carry the casket. Now, they have six pallbearers from the military to carry the casket. So he brings me up on the left side of the casket at the front, and I pick it up. And it's, it's concrete. It's heavy. A concrete casket. Yes, it's very heavy, very heavy. It's small, but it's very heavy. And, and we start to move out. And, of course, there's only really room for about six people. So I'm in the way, and, and the guy behind me is stepping on my feet, and I'm trying to get out of his way. And finally I realize I'm bigger than these guys. My arms are longer, so I let my arms stretch out a little bit, and then I'm walking outside of their line of walk, so we make it. And we walk very slow, very, you know, like a funeral procession would walk. And it's about, like I say, 50 yards from the tent um, past the house and up the road to the main road. And that's where they have the, the funeral carriage is, is a closed um, carriage with glass sides and little dragons' um, heads on either side on the front, 
and a T-bar handle in the front for pulling. And what happens is the six pallbearers, um, after we load the, the casket into the carriage, they push the carriage along, and one of them's up front pulling. Well, Wayne Carlin and I were allowed to stand at the front of the funeral carriage and hold on to the dragon's head and help pull it along. Um, and by now, it's, it's probably 1030, something like that, and it's hot. I mean, it's really hot. It's got to be... Well, it was 98 last time I heard, so it's probably around 100, 101 degrees, and there's no wind, and that sun's beating down, and we're really drenched with sweat, all of us. I mean, wiping it off your brow, it's running into your eyes. And none of us had drunk any water in two or three hours now. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, just too much going on to even think about it. So we start walking down the road very slow. The band, there's a band behind us and a band in front of us playing very loudly, I might add. Just in front of the funeral carriage where I'm walking is the, they've got a, a thing on their shoulders where they're carrying the altar from the family home. And we're walking slowly, and it's almost a click. I mean, somewhere between a half mile, three quarters of a mile mm -hmm. to, the, to the graveyard, I mean, to the cemetery. And it's down that dirt road, that narrow dirt road, and in the middle of rice paddies. I mean, there's a little narrow path built up berm leading mm -hmm. to the cemetery, and there's rice paddies on both sides. Um, very picturesque place to, if you're going to be buried, very, very wonderful place to be buried. Um, so we're walking slowly down there, and it's, it's really hot. I mean, it, it's really hot. And about maybe 100, 150 yards down the road, I realize that I'm beginning to feel faint. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I'm going to pass out because I, I, I realize heat prostration is fixing mm -hmm. to hit me. So I'm thinking about you know, this is going to be really undignified, but I got to get out of here and get some water or I'm going to fall on my face and really be undignified. About that time, one of the Vietnamese veterans comes up to me and gives me his hat because mm -hmm. I had not thought to wear a hat in the sun like that. And, and then about 10 seconds later, my interpreter, Quan, comes up with a big bottle of water and gives it to me. And meanwhile, they're doing the same thing for Wayne Carlin. And I thought, what, what? You know, this is very thoughtful of these people to think of, to think of in, in such an emotional moment where all their concentrations are on the funeral. To still be thinking about us that much was very touching. And, and I wouldn't have made it if I hadn't gotten some water. I mean, we were badly dehydrated. So anyway, we finally make it down the road. And I, I'm looking up and down the road, and as far as I can see in front of me and as far as I can see in back, I mean, the road is clogged with people. So the whole village is, is trooping up to the cemetery. And then we get to the cemetery and we go in and we get to the grave site. Now, when you get to the cemetery, there are normal graves on the left. On the right, all the gravestones are red, and those are the veterans. And there are about, um, I think, 187, somewhere between 100 and 200 um, veterans buried there. But they only know the identity of about 18 of the remains. The rest of them, they just know they're, they're Vietnamese KIA. They don't know who they are. Um, and KIA, the, killed in action. KIA, right, yeah. killed in action. And they don't really know who they are. So we go to the grave site, and then the, uh, the military pallbearers lower the grave, uh, lower the coffin into the grave site. And then uh, the older brother comes up and gives me a handful of dirt, a big clot of dirt. And I take it, and I'm not quite sure what's going on, you know. And then Quan says, he wants you to be the first one to throw a handful of dirt into the grave. Mm -hmm. And of course, I just lose it at that point. I'm just, I start sobbing, I can't help it. I mean, just, me of all people. I mean, what an honor. Anyway. It's okay. Um, 
so anyway, I throw the first handful of dirt in the grave, crump it up and trinkle it in the grave. And I step back and I'm looking at the dirt on my hands. I'm thinking, how, how poetic. Here's a farmer's son, a farmer. Uh, and, and I've got dirt on my hands at his funeral. I mean, this is, this is perfect. Yeah. And then, but you were a farm boy too when you grew yes, up. Yes, I was. I mean, we, we connected that way. I connected with the family because of that. We, we, when they found out I'd been a farmer also, I mean, we just had a bond immediately on that. And then the rest of the family members also, you know, put some dirt into the grave. And then a couple of the villagers finished filling in the grave. And then, um, Wayne and I took, we had brought a big wreath and we took it and set it and some of the other family members and one of the village um, officials also, we had like about five or six wreaths, big, huge wreaths that we set over the gravesite. And then, uh, then we all stepped around the front of the grave and we again lit incense and each one of us walked up and stuck the incense into the, into the soft earth of the grave and had a few moments of prayer there. And, and then the funeral was over with. And most of the villagers then dispersed and started headed back to the village. The TV crew, uh, the Vietnamese TV crew, took us off to one side and did an interview with me, an interview with um, Wayne about the, the ceremony and about our feelings and so forth. And then there was everybody wanted to take some pictures by the grave and, and of the grave site and everything. And then we went back also to the village, walked back to the village. And by the time by that time, you know, they'd taken the funeral carriage back and and um, they had set out a big feast right outside the family home, uh, maybe eight or ten tables, and the whole village was there eating. Mm-hmm. And we were given seats of honor, actually, right next to the family members. And, and the mood was so different. I mean, everybody was open. All the family members were over touching me, uh, thanking me, uh, talking to me. The niece who had been wailing so madly um, only 20 minutes before or an hour before now was up hugging me and, and thanking me and, and talking to me, sat right next to me. Um, and we had a, a great hour or two there of, of shared food and, and shared memories and, and, and got to know each other, get a commonality. And it was wonderful. Um, I felt like I was, you know, with relatives. It was, it was really wonderful. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Vietnam veteran Homer Steedley about his return to Vietnam. And then eventually we, we uh, um, went back to the fa- They had moved the altar back in the house. We went back just before we left and made one more um, trip to the altar and, and had a quiet moment there to reflect on kind of what had happened. And, uh, and then we said our goodbyes and left. And I was so touched, the niece, at least three different times, once when I left the house, once on the, on the little trail leading up to the road, and then once we were waiting at the van for, for the TV crew to show up because they had been doing some more filming. She came up and just hugged me and, 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 and kept shaking my hand and, and telling me that I had to come back soon. I mean, very touching. Uh, the whole atmosphere had changed so dramatically. There was such a, a relief. On, you, you know, they'd been very somber and very sad up until that point. Now they're all grinning from ear to ear. Um, just complete change of, of atmosphere and, and very wonderful ending to the, to the, whole, to the whole thing. You see, that sounds like, almost like a New Orleans funeral. Yes, very much so. I thought the same thing. It would have, if you had not known where we were, that's exactly what you would have thought. Because you do the dirge on the way to the grave and on the way back you exactly, dance. Exactly, exactly. Very much, very much like that. Okay. Well, anyway, we leave and we go back to Hanoi and we spend a night in Hanoi. And then the next day we go to... Um, 
this uh, the the newspaper editor uh, Fantan Howe mm-hmm. runs a rehabilitation center where she she basically does leadership training for for Vietnamese school children and and other groups and and we was she wanted us to see the center so we drove out to her center which is about a two hour maybe three hour drive from out of Hanoi and it's it's an old family home um, which is an old French villa actually beautiful place. And, and then she's got this training center, and, and there are like a half a dozen buildings. Mm-hmm. And she said the students built all of these buildings themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and, and these are the dormitories for the students. And as we're walking around the grounds, and it's beautiful. You've got papaya trees and banana trees mm-hmm. and, 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 and all kinds of flowers and fruits. And some of the fruits I can't even identify. One of them looks like a Klingon fruit with spiky covering, you know. <laughs> I mean, but just a marvelous uh, tropical mm-hmm. scene with, with mountain views, I mean, across the valley. It was just beautiful. And as we're walking around, I look over on this walking the last path before we come back up and go to her house. And I'm looking over at the right, and I notice all these obstacle courses set up that were right out of officer's candidate school. I mean, they're the same things I trained, did my leadership training on as an officer in training. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, where did you get these ideas from? She said, she chuckled. She said, well, there's a, uh, a Marine Corps sergeant at the embassy, and he helped me get the plans for these. And, and that's what she uses, the same things that I used to train on. <laughs> and what they're designed to do is build group, um, yeah. a group structure, make you work as a team. Mm-hmm. Because you can't complete the obstacles by yourself. You right. have to work in consort to, to, get, yep. to get the task accomplished. And that, that's what it's trying to, to, mm-hmm. to teach, you know. So I, I was kind of, kind of impressed with that. Anyway, we go back to Hanoi. And um, then Wayne's friend, Nguyen uh, Kui uh, Duck, is a writer and, and an artist. Um, and he had just built uh, a home up in the mountains, in the Tam Dao Mountains, which is like Eight ten thousand feet up, and just in, in, in you know in, in triple in tropical jungle. I mean, it's a beautiful place. So we drive up there. It's about a five or six hour drive, and we get up into the mountains, and we spend the last two days in country at this wonderful retreat. And you can see like fifty or eighty miles across the valley in front of you. I mean, it's just incredibly gorgeous. And so we got to de-stress and spend the last two days in country at this wonderful retreat um, estate that he has out there. And then we come back and hit a plane from Hanoi to Saigon, and then from Saigon to Narita, and then from Narita back to the States. And, you know, 24 hours later, we're back home. But uh, one of the things that really freaked me out, when I first started my website and started trying to address my memories of Vietnam and come to terms with them, uh, about the second day that I had published the website, I was taking my dog for a walk across the road in the mountains. And by the way, the mountains where I live now in western North Carolina are almost identical to the mountains in the Central Highlands where I fought in Vietnam. The only difference is they're a little bit steeper in Vietnam mm-hmm. and, and a little bit higher. But, and, but they're the same kind of, yeah. of vegetation without the banana trees and the papaya, of course. Mm-hmm. In fact, I found out that there's probably a dozen species of plants and animals that grow only in two places in the world. That's in western North Carolina and in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, they're remnants of the plant, the vegetation ring that that formed at the edge of the ice sheet during the last ice age. So it, it, it's when I'm at home, I feel like I'm in Vietnam. When I'm in Vietnam in the Central Highlands, I feel like I'm at home. It's very comfortable. But anyway, I'm walking my dog across the road, and in this open field, it's, it's a hay field. Um, I mean, nobody goes over there except the hay, you know, the farmer to, to harvest his hay. 
as I'm walking the dog, she digs something up and brings it over to me. It's a little plastic soldier, World War II soldier, an infantryman in a kneeling position with his, with his rifle. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I just started working on a website. Mm-hmm. So this is like spooky. This is like a sign, okay? Mm-hmm. I go to Vietnam and go into Duck's house, go down, walk in, look around, look at the marvelous view, and then I turn and look at the left on a little low table he had there. Here's the same soldier, the Vietnamese version of an infantryman in a kneeling rifle position. I mean, it's just like, what a coincidence. I mean, this is like scary. It's so, and I asked him, where'd you get that? He says, oh, I found it while I was walking down the road. And I said, this is just too, you know, Wayne said, he's going he's to write a book about Dom's life and my life and our, our meeting together. Wayne said, I can't put that in a book. People think I made that up. <laughs> I mean, coincidences like that just don't happen, you know. Well, Homer, an incredible journey. And uh, we're, alas, we're about to run out of time, so I need you to maybe come up with some, some last words about that you'd like to share with our listeners about your experience. Well, I think the biggest impact the trip has had on me is, one, it's opened me up. I was repressed a lot more than I realized, and it's really opened me up um, emotionally. Uh, the thing I remember most about the trip is the people. Um, I came from a small southern farming town and where everybody knew everybody, everybody took care of everybody. Yeah, yeah very, very close-knit community. Well, that's exactly what Taijing is. It's a small farming community, very close-knit community. The only difference between them and my hometown is that they're more of a group-oriented culture. Everything We're so independent-minded over here, you know. Especially we, in South Carolina. Especially in South Carolina, exactly. But over there... Every decision you make, your first thought is, how will it affect the community? And the community always comes first. So, so for instance, when we went to visit the village, this was something that had never happened before. So the first thing they did was had a village meeting and decided what was going to take place, who was going to do what, and they, they discussed the, the implications and got the whole village involved. Um, so I, I, find, I found it very not much different from, from being back home. The only difference, it's a communist country. Mm-hmm. So you have to have three levels of paperwork to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I say, everything is first cleared through the political officers who make sure that it's in line with the, the political um, ideals and the political goals of the country, which is okay. One-on-one, when you talk to the individual people, it's just like talking to people on the streets back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and their openness, their, their, their forgiveness um, – it just, it just touches your heart. I mean, it's what all us Christians would like to think we do in our lives. You know, forgive and 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 and, and do unto others as you have them do unto you. It, it's it it was very touching. I I did not during my tours in Vietnam get to know the Vietnamese people very well. The only Vietnamese I saw were enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never got to know the people. Um, I'm glad I finally did. Uh, they're wonderful people. I could live in that country and it's, feel it's perfectly. Be, it is a beautiful country. It's a beautiful country with beautiful people. I, I Even, like I say, on the street talking to total strangers, trying to get directions or something like that, they just go out of their way to help you. I mean, they, they stop whatever they're doing and just go out of their way and, and grab other people and, and, and get them involved in the process of helping you find wherever it is you're mm-hmm. trying to. I mean, it's just they're very, very nice people. I didn't meet a single person in Vietnam I didn't like. All right. Now, now Homer, um, 
I assume that when, since you had a, a Vietnamese uh, television crew, that a program was going to be aired in Vietnam about the yes, yes, about a documentary. This. He made a documentary, and which is wonderful for the family because it just lends further credence to the the the, the truth, the veracity of the final resolution of what happened to their son. Are they going to send you a copy, a DVD? Yes, they're going to, right. I'll definitely get a copy of that. Okay. All right. Well, Homer Steedley, Vietnam veteran, uh, returned to Vietnam, and um, Bamberg boy, farm boy, uh, now retired to the mountains of North Carolina. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It's an interesting, interesting story about a young man from rural South Carolina who shot and killed a young man from rural Vietnam and how through the Internet he got into contact with the young man's family. And Homer went back to Vietnam to participate in the recovery of the remains of the young man who was killed, and then the funeral with the family, in which he was asked by the family to take a prominent role. It's quite a story. Now, folks, I've known Homer Steedley for almost 25 years. He used to work at at USC. He kept my computer going all that time. Homer is not an emotional individual. If anything, Stoic would describe him. During the course of this interview, the emotions that welled up in his eyes, in his voice, even in his body language was pretty emotional to watch. And then he described the emotional situation in which he found himself in Vietnam. In many ways, He felt like it was a journey back home. And he talked about how being in a small farming community in Vietnam, how much he felt like he had in common with folks who used to be the enemy. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Listings of all our programs, guests, and subjects, past, present, and upcoming, are at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org. Once you're there, you can also check out our blog. And you can subscribe to our weekly podcasts. Then you'll be able to download and hear Walter Edgar's Journal each week on your computer, iPod, or MP3 player. You'll find all this and more at walteredgarsjournal.etvradio.org.